Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, which covers the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive health startups and leaders. So you are listening to one of our first 20 episodes. So first of all, thank you so much for listening. As you can imagine with the podcast, they get more and more popular, which ours certainly did after episode 20. So we started giving proper introductions, long introductions, and we upgraded our equipment and everything like that. So that's why you're hearing from me now, because we're putting this at the start of every one of those first 20 episodes. So I am your host. My name is James Someru. I'm an anesthetics and intensive care doctor by background. So I practiced for five years. I did loads of different jobs in policy and leadership within the UK NHS. I've run two different health tech accelerators to help startups grow, access different markets in the UK and abroad. And now I'm a co-founder of HS and we build, scale and invest in the best health tech startups. So if you want to get in touch with us, then head on over to the description of this podcast. In there, you will find all of the links to our social media, website, emails, etc. So click on those, follow us, let us know what you think of the podcast and feel free to suggest any guests. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Connect with us. Let us know what you think. Joining James and I today is Dr. Uman Patel, who is the clinical director at Babylon and uh, NHS pediatrician. Uh, Umang, why don't we hand things over to you to introduce yourself and explain a little bit about your journey into health tech? Great. Thanks, Alex. Quick background to my story. So I graduated from medical school uh, quite merrily on my way to um, becoming a consultant paediatrician and going through the training when it occurred to me that we had to stop sticking plasters on our problems uh, figuratively and uh, literally. So what we needed to do was make sure we got more upstream and it occurred to me that money always seemed to be the burning platform that everybody used as the reason that we can do more stuff or improve things. So back then I took out um, a little bit of time for my training, did a leadership fellowship with the NHS Leadership Academy before taking a role at Aviva, the insurance company, thinking, uh, I wonder how hard it can be to work out how money flows for a system. And it occurred to me that one of the biggest challenges I had was that I wasn't very good at using Excel. So I thought, where better than go to an insurance company to learn that uh, vital skill? Having gone there, I met Ali, um, who said to me, hey, look, when you get bored of working for an insurance company, um, give me a call because we're doing some cool stuff with technology here. Uh, and that sort of ended me up at Babylon quite accidentally uh, and now in the middle of what appears to be quite an exciting health tech revolution. Uh, I'm still an NHS paediatrician and I would describe that as my proper job. So every Friday, I still work for the NHS uh, from Lee Park Hospital in Hampshire uh, on the wards treating children. And in fact, that's where I first met James um, way back when. I guess your, your journey, sort of similar to Alex and I, really started as a clinician wanting to make change. So what what were some of the things that you did sort of as a clinician to, to do that? Because I know you and I worked together and did a few of these things together. Yeah, so... Um, it always occurred to me when we were working on the front line and, and increasingly as I do now, how hard it is to make change. And when I reflect back on um, some of the most successful things that we ever did, I think you and I, James, were involved in trying to get the printers at our hospital to print double-sided. <laughs> yeah. And I think that yeah. might have been one of our biggest success stories. Um, I remember at one point in one of our handover rooms, we painted the um, hands of the clock 
white because they were black on a dark background and therefore we were always over running from handover never out on time and you could just see these little things piling up leading to increasing stress and inefficiency slightly bigger than that i did a leadership fellowship project looking at service level management say i wondered how much um it actually costs to see a neonatal patient so i just thought why can't we work that out i mean we record everything so why can't we work out how much it costs per cannula per amount of oxygen um in fact i got down to how much it cost us to have a chaplain visit the ward once a week um down to the electricity that it costs to run an incubator uh, to try and work out how much it really costs to deliver healthcare. So I figured if you could work that out, then you'd have a hope of trying to work out how much you might be able to save using some of the efficiencies. Uh, that was, in fact, the project that I used to get me into the leadership fellowship with the NHS Leadership Academy. Um, and just finally on that, what amazed me about it and really kicked off um, my interest in making changes like this was that we our biggest problem back then was we didn't have enough money um, to employ a new neonatal consultant, even though the rota was overstretched. Mm. fascinatingly uh, to find that money which was around £150,000 with all of the on costs etc all we had to do was get the computer systems to talk to each other on the right day what was actually happening was we were doing all of our coding the day after we'd sent the billing off to the CCG so in fact we were being underpaid to the tune of uh, fascinatingly serendipitously uh, about £150,000 so just by switching the days the computer talked to get to each other or we sent the file off um, were able to find that money uh, and it occurred to me then the only way of really being able to find out these sort of nuggets and increase these efficiencies was to get in um, deep into the challenges that were being faced and mm. um, what you couldn't have was have clinicians on one side saying hey I'm a doctor and I want to do this and then managers or um, the administration teams on the other side going oh no but we do it like this we had to create that sort of bridge what I'm increasingly excited about now is just the fact that that bridge is being replaced by technology. So now it's, well, actually, you know, everyone's got a mobile phone and everybody wants to interact. So I think there's a really exciting time ahead when we can start saying we don't actually need all of these people doing all of these processes. These people can get on with making stuff better because patients themselves can take a much more active role. It's really interesting, isn't it, how something as simple as interoperability between computer systems can solve such a problem so quickly to the tune of 150k which then gives you the opportunity to invest in another consultant for the unit and it comes down to those simple things like just getting computer systems to talk to each other which is why for health tech startups often when you know you might not necessarily have that domain expert in the team and you're looking for problems to solve you might not realize that there are these things that literally need to be in place before you even try and attack even bigger problems that um, they're actually aiming for yeah absolutely I mean, what's amazed me throughout my career to date is how those simple things are, are relatively easy to unearth when you look in the right place mm. but I think when you're sat there faced with so many potential challenges and problems you just always go for the sort of the bigger much grander um, idea so you, you you know you're sitting there thinking well if only I could replace the entire IT system and one thing that I've definitely learned is that it's it, it's less heroics we need and more iterative changes. So how can we all be empowered enough to make the smaller changes uh, more consistently to lead to these improvements? Because the big changes are really hard. I mean, I, I remember fantasizing about replacing the handover system and the handover sheets that we were creating 
Um, but truthfully, that's such a hard task with so many um, complex parts to the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we should just park that and think about how we make stuff better on a day to day. And increasingly, when we're going through this, think about how we can involve patients more. So I think we're trying to build on a system that's always put hospitals and healthcare in the middle of it. And I think the change that's happening now is around personalization and how we can get patients much more involved. Mm-hmm. And so you've talked about a little bit of the stuff that you learned at Aviva. Um, but tell us more about your move to Babylon. So you said you met Ali, obviously Ali Parser is the founder and CEO of Babylon. Meeting him for the first time, um, what was that like as an experience? Uh, yeah, it, it was it was funny, actually. So um, I, in fact, met his wife first, okay. Marie, and um, and I met her at the King's Fund. And I did my pitch of, you know, when I'm a doctor looking at uh, changing things, ended up at Aviva. And she was working for a healthcare accelerator at the time. Um, and she said to me, and she does not use a surname parcel. She didn't in that conversation. And it would never have occurred to me that she was married to Ali. Um, but somewhat sneakily said to me, um, hey, you should meet this guy, Ali Parser. Have you ever heard of him? Uh, and I said, yes. Well, I've seen him on the telly because you know, I knew him a little bit from Circle. Uh, as in, I'd, I'd watched a little bit about um, Circle and seen him doing some news interviews. Um, he seems like a great guy, although I wonder why it always needs an investment banker to run a health system or a health hospital, run a hospital when it could perhaps be more uh, clinically led. She laughed and went, oh, you should chat to him about that. I'll see if I can set up a meeting. Mm. I thought nothing of it, thinking, you know, lots of people say, we'll set these things up. Uh, And then, you know, the next day I got a phone call um, saying, hey, I'm Ali. Uh, It'd be great to catch up. Um, I understood you, you spoke to somebody and they said we should meet. So I went, okay a bit taken aback by the the meeting all right. a bit secretive yeah a bit secretive and, <laughs> and then went off to meet him i can't remember what it was now he's in um, a, a coffee shop in london somewhere um and he said oh hey you probably you may not know what i look like um but i'm i look a little bit like uh, an iranian danny debito which i thought was <laughs> hilarious um and then i met him and you know i think we were supposed to be there for half an hour we were there for you know i think two and a half three hours in the end just talking about what the future of healthcare might look like and he said to me look hey um i'm building this this thing called babylon there's three or four of us at the moment working on it um here i'm going to show you a quick prototype of it uh let me know what you think obviously i saw the early version of babylon was like this is brilliant and then he said two things which were really important one was he just said look imagine if we stopped talking about it and just did it so you know rather than um continually thinking about how we can use technology and healthcare let's just get on with it and see what we can do um and then it, he said you know the other question was you know when you get bored of working for an insurance company give me a call um that didn't take too long uh, and i ended up at babylon uh, a little while later wow so there's only four or five of you in the team when you joined uh, i was employee number 10 so oh, yeah, uh, number 10 so i didn't quite get into single digits and what was your role then when you first went in so uh fascinating so first experience of ever working for a startup and of course we uh there weren't really defined roles so i joined uh, around the same time as um dr mabashabat so our medical officer so so mob and i met a bit before joining babylon we both joined around the same time and mob was like well i'm a gp i'm going to look after primary care um 
obviously I was a paediatrician, so I said I'll start looking at our secondary and tertiary care pathways and we'll see where we can get to. Very rapidly, it became clear that there was no real point worrying about secondary and tertiary care pathways if we weren't able to get up to the critical mass of primary care users that we needed. Mm-hmm. So uh, I then transitioned more into our commercial team and partnerships team, where I was looking at how we could find populations of people to start putting through our system to make sure we got the right users, to make sure we're able to capture the right amounts of data to allow us to then build out our proposition and prove that it was most useful. Um, and I've been in that team ever since. You guys were sort of pioneering at that stage. So what were the challenges back then? Probably not past tense. I think the challenges remain the same now. Mm. I think doing anything that's, um, that is new, especially in healthcare, is, is inherently challenging. Uh, the challenges are often um, because people are so change weary. So I think some of our biggest challenges were how can we define real value from what we were doing? So how do we capture it up? So somebody described it to me as one of the biggest challenges in healthcare. And this was a management consultant. And he said, but the problem is what I really want you to do is be able to prove the negative. So I want you to be able to prove that if you do something upstream, it will result in a lower cost downstream. Mm. But that's sort of a negative value. So you don't know the interventions that you make um, will lead to that. And of course, there are so many confounding factors. So when we're talking to health systems or populations such as employee groups or insurance companies, and they're saying, okay, but I know how much I spend today. And you're asking me to implement your service because it might save some money and I completely want it to. Show me how that's going to translate into fewer surgeries or or you know a lower mm. cost base and it's really hard when you're trying to do stuff that is is so much further upstream i mean making a surgical procedure five percent more efficient you can track that back making a doctor's appointment in primary care um more efficient always leads to the challenges of well how do you know that that's going to lead to a um significant clinical improvement uh, sufficient enough that that person doesn't end up needing to spend some time in hospital as an mm. example and that's really hard so all of our problems get based around that I think of how do you start a starting things uh, along the right track so that you're able to capture up enough data to prove those um, proof points and then the other challenge of course which is well documented is just anything can change that involves technology the fear of that technology not being safe. I guess despite those challenges that you guys have scaled um relatively quickly and obviously you and i've been catching up on and off for the last you know couple of years and it's been really fascinating for me to watch you guys um and your and the scale that you've achieved so far so i guess for all the startups listening what what do you think have been the reasons that babylon has scaled so quickly what do you think has been the recipe for success i remember when i first joined babylon or the whole startup thing and i remember thinking uh say so in a traditional medical approach, I thought, well, I'll go and read some books about what it's like to be in a startup, <laughs> read the blogs or, or listen to the podcast. And I remember everybody harping on about culture and going, you know, it's all about culture and getting the right team and um, and making sure that you, you deliver on that those promises that you make from the beginning. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder if all the people that write these books on culture, it's just an easy book to write. I just I was like, I mean, how important can culture really be? I mean, mm. coming from an NHS background where I think we take culture for granted to our peril, um, we I was just like, you know, you just get on with it, right? 
the recipe for success has definitely been the culture. So having a founder that is just get out there and do it. So our mantra of dream big, build fast and try and be brilliant. Like the idea that we're able to have a leadership team that says, you know what, you're not going to get into trouble for trying. But mm. keeping up that, I mean, we call it decision velocity. So making sure we made decisions um, quickly and we're able to iterate fast in order to make sure we improve the service um, without any delays to make sure that we kept up our safety standards by quick reporting. Um, so that culture has probably been the, the, the defining factor as I look back. Mm. It's also one of the hardest things to keep as we grow. So we're now close to uh, 550 people in our London office. And if you include all of our staff that work remotely, including some of our doctors, et cetera, you know, that number goes up to over 800. So scaling from 10 people to 800 people and keeping that culture um, has been probably the biggest internal challenge. Mm. Well, I, I think it's really important. And I mean, in practical terms, because we'll, we'll have a number of people listening who might have gone through or recently gone through sort of seed rounds or series A rounds with their health tech startups. In, in practical terms, how have, how have you seen that culture within Babylon scale to employees who, who may not necessarily be all in the same office um, or indeed all working in the same teams? Yeah, I'd say practically a lot of this falls on to Ali. So a lot of, I think he probably spends over half of his time now just trying to make sure that the, the teams and new starters um, get a sense of who he is and the vision. So practically, it's a little bit like joining a cult. So our, so that we believe that we can deliver affordable and accessible healthcare to everybody on the planet um, almost gets, uh, you know, tattooed to you when you come in. So we, everything has to get related back to that mission statement. So, you know, is what you're doing right now helping make healthcare more affordable? Um, is it helping healthcare um, become more accessible? So having that is really important. And then to give you an example of it, you know, like Ali does every Monday, we have a stand up uh, where everyone in the company joins. And uh, when Ali's around, he'll do it. And then uh, one of the other teams will present what they're doing. Every new starter has a lunch with Ali. Uh, I remember when we first started doing that, there was a uh, it was a one to one lunch. Now, of course, it's, uh, it's the rate of scale that we've got. It's a, a group lunch. Uh, every single member that joins has a buddy. So each one of us that have been around for a long time have buddies that can then help instill our principles to new starters. Because, you know, when you join Babylon, it's a bit like a rocket ship. You know, we're going so fast. Um, making sure that we protect people coming in is really important. So uh, to give you a quick story of when I knew we were embedding the right sort of culture, um, I remember talking to somebody that worked at Bloomberg and we were talking about what we're doing at Babylon. And this person said, hey, um, that's great. You know what? Mike would love this. And a couple of weeks later, we were talking to somebody that was working for Amazon. And um, again, I was showing them what we were doing. And, and then they were like, oh, do you know what? This is brilliant. Jeff would love this. And reflecting on it, I was like, I bet either of those two people don't know Mike Bloomberg or Jeff Bezos. I mean, just <laughs> realistically, I mean, just if they're talking to me, they probably don't have a, a, a massive dialogue with with those two leaders. But it was lovely that they thought that they could distill what we were doing into a way that their um, their founders, you know, going back to that mission statement, would have appreciated. A couple of weeks ago, I was in the kitchen at, at Babylon and. Um, I overheard some new starters talking. Um, one of them was going, oh, do you know, that's a really great idea. Ali would love it. 
And I thought to myself, I know they can't have had much time with Ali, but it was a great cultural trait that they felt they knew the embodiment of the mission um, well enough to feel confident enough to sort of relate it back to going, actually, do you know what? I think this is a good thing to do. And I think if we can keep that up, then we'll continue to be successful. Do you know what influences Ali has had in, I guess, creating that culture and, and his influences in building the company in the way that he has? I think, well, he's 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 just an out-and-out out entrepreneur. I mean, it's it's been the most brilliant thing, being able to watch him and learn from him and, um, you know, uh, see the way that the company's grown. Uh, I think if you talk to Ali about it, uh, it depends what mood you catch him in, but sometimes it's like, yeah, of course it was always going to be like this, but really, you never know. So he does a lot of, uh, he listens to a lot of podcasts, he reads a lot of books, he uh, is constantly trying to iterate our processes to make them better um, and learn from from leaders from all over the world that have done things before us to, to be able to get that inspiration and steal some of their tricks. So being able to um, reduce some of our team sizes down to the two pizza team sizes, because that's what Amazon do. And, you know, it seems to work for them. Um, down to the fact that he's always just tried to run it a bit like an open family. So um, I've always been impressed by his ability to know um, almost everybody by name and he'll know the names of our children and he'll be able to say, you know, it's, it's trying to be able to keep that culture of we're all in this together on a mission. Um, I think is something that he's got in his roots of just being an out and out entrepreneur and it's mission based more than anything else. So mm. it's, when it's tough it's because you know we've got to get on and we've got to get this because what we're trying to do is really important extrapolating back james and i were asked quite recently about why um you know certain companies within healthcare were seemingly i suppose in inverted commas doing better than others and obviously there are a number of a significant number of, of telehealth or um ai based um symptom checker type startups that are now sort of popping up all over the place and james and i actually did a, a big sort of what was essentially almost a systematic review for an insurer um, earlier in the year. So we we know you know how many there are, and when we got asked you know why uh, are someone like Babylon um, really the the leaders in the sector at the moment? Um, my answer to that was I don't think it's really anything to do with healthcare or necessarily anything to do with the product. It's more of a uh, it's about the founding team. It's about entrepreneurial ability and how they approach all the problems, and that goes in keeping with everything you've mentioned, which is things like building culture uh, and empowering employees to, to do their best within that company structure so that at every part of the organization you're really winning over other companies or other organizations. Yeah, I think, um, I, I think one, of the, one of the downsides is we make it sound like it's, it's Ali. And I think going back to those stories, I think um, clearly that's a massive part, but I, that embodiment of the mission statement, I think, we all like stories and we need to relate it back. And I think that's why when you relate um, founder stories back to the founders, you it's, it's a bit of a human trait to believe that it was a single entity, but it completely, it's about being on the mission and how do you try and instill that mission um, into the hearts of everybody that joins. Um, but then also exactly like you say, empower people to get on and do that mission. I mean. I remember, you know, when you're in meetings and people are going, actually, uh, I want to do this, being able to say, well, if it relates to the mission and improves it, that's great. Not, hey, what we need to do is wait 
you know, like my experience at Aviva was a bit more, hey, I tell you what, why don't you write that into a paper, uh, wait six weeks for the next leadership team meeting and then vote on it. It's very much a, hey, look, that seems like a great idea. Let's just do it. Mm. Um, and that speed, I think, is something that's kept us um, ahead of the curve. Um, we tend not to look too much at our competitors because, again, going back to the mission, it's like, well, wouldn't it be cool if what we're able to do is establish as um, this establish AI, establish health technology of a, as a as a proven bona fide way of improving clinical outcomes mm. for a lower cost? I mean, if we can do that and then lots of other people do it too, great. I mean, we'll have just improved healthcare. Yeah, I mean, I mean that, that mentality of um, really getting stuff done quickly, pivoting quickly, and then also all the founder characteristics that we've, we've sort of touched upon already it is what we have been doing really at HS when we select people. And we had, uh, we've had uh, Vesalian and we've had um, Febris on, on the podcast previously who are doing some things in AI, uh, but certainly that early stage of companies where it is just two three maybe four founders in some cases it's so important that, that that founding team has the technical capabilities but also the ability to get things done really really quickly and pivot in order to succeed and that's really what we look for w regarding ai uh, we've done a couple of podcasts now where we've talked to some of uh, the companies that, that we know very well so ones like febris and Vesalian. what are babylon doing uh, in using sort of ai at the moment in order to help for patients yeah, so um, so sort of quick disclaimer: definitely not an AI expert. So, um, as a sort of uh, proper job pediatrician looking inwards, uh, forgive me if I get any of the bits and the technicalities wrong. But the excitement that we have and and the traction that we're seeing using artificial intelligence is amazing. Um, I often think you know the ability to um, utilize this technology to improve just every part of the clinical experience from a patient perspective is where the power lies so from as a as an example in my mind being able to use natural language processing to be able to take a good presenting complaint from a patient is really important if you think about what we do today um patients come and see us we're incredibly time pressured um we say uh, we're all taught to ask an open question like um, oh, what brings you here today? Um, but of course, what we do is very quickly interrupt them and say, no, can you just tell me what's wrong so I can try and fix it? Because uh, I've got, you know, a long line of other people that I need to see. I don't think that allows for good healthcare. I don't think the reason that we're all taught to ask open questions is in the attempt to allow patients to explain to us truthfully what their symptoms are and let it come out over the course of, of that initial um, part of the conversation. Imagine when doctors, you know, and again, if we had more time, um, I'm sure as doctors and clinicians would be able to, to do it better. But that's just not going to happen realistically, not in the NHS. Um, in fact, not really in any healthcare system that I'm aware of in the world. I don't think there's a healthcare system in the world that's saying, hey, I've got too many doctors um, and they're sat there twiddling their thumbs. Imagine when you can start using, you know, some AI processes like natural language processing to be able to start saying, oh, hey, actually, do tell me what's wrong with you um, and do it in your own words, in your own time. Uh, and then combine that with uh, the other parts of the AI that we're using. So the ability to safely use uh, graphical reasoning to determine what actually is going wrong with you. So we can then give you the next question in order to help us understand what the next bit of advice should be. 
imagine combining all of that with a user base that allows you know the computer to know what medicines you're taking for example so you don't have to keep on repeating yourself i mean that combination all together is what we call ai and we hope that we can help make doctors more efficient by using it and ultimately lead to better um, clinical outcomes and, and with you being a part of Babylon pretty much right from the get-go, um, how have you seen AI from a business point of view be integrated with Babylon beginning in you know, very much pushing telehealth, telemedicine services? How did you see that sort of integrated? Was that the plan from day one? Pretty much from day one. I think the, I, I don't know if we necessarily called it AI or, you, you know, we were sure if we were going to do it or uh, ourselves in-house or some other way. But the concept is always how can we help healthcare become more sustainable? And sustainability always equaled empowering patients to help themselves. I think Simon Stevens has this great quote that um, patients are the only renewable source of energy in healthcare. And, you know, we took that to heart and we're like, how can we make that a reality? How can we give people the tools that they need to be able to understand um, their health queries better? It started with a simple symptom checker um, that's gone on to the full-fledged chatbot that you may have seen now and what we're doing, which is powered much more by using the technology that we're building. Um, but it was always about how can we help healthcare uh, become more sustainable by putting patients back at the centre of it? And how can we help doctors just save more time? I mean, you know, despite everything else, this is about how can we create more time in a system that doesn't have more time and of course, with healthcare, the caveats of you can't just do that unless you're able to do it in a safe and personalised type of way. And I guess playing sort of devil's advocate, you know, the things that um, are, are written in the press around uh, AI in general and, and splitting healthcare on symptom checkers is our patients then missing out on that in-person contact time with a, a GP, with a physician. What are your thoughts on, on how you've seen that technology evolve? Well, I think the technology, I think, well, there's two answers to that question. If you lived in a world where you had unlimited resources and you were able to give everybody a doctor in their pocket to talk to you um, or, you know, magic one up that was, you know, a very clever doctor relevant to their disease right then that knew their history, then amazing. But of course, that's just not real life. So I think we've got to take away... Um, We've got to be much more pragmatic. I don't think we can keep on being romantic about what healthcare should be or could be. Second part of that is I'm not sure that people today actually do want to have that type of romantic notion that we've got in our heads. Um, if you think about what's happened in almost every other sector, what we've done is empower people to help themselves decide when and where they want to interact with the experts. And generally, that's led to great improvements. So, you know, in banking, being able to check your bank balance by yourself and when you needed help and advice on, you know, your loans or, you know, your mortgage or whatever, booking an appointment with an expert then has led to greater efficiencies in that sector, um, all the way to retail, if we talk about Amazon, all the way up to, um, you know, the airline industries, which have managed to make things more efficient, yet also improve the the, the safety um, from from a getting on board a plane to b the ability for that plane to help be flown using technology um, all the way through um, the entire cycle. Around the technology, it's an interesting point because I was actually having a conversation um, just yesterday with somebody around a couple of my companies which operate in the education space, which similarly use things like natural language processing. Uh, and also virtual augmented reality. And one of the things that I was saying was we're actually building, not even for necessarily the current generation of learners, um, but we're building for 
learners you know, five, 10 years in the future who are going to want to engage with uh, educational materials in a completely different way to how they do today. And I completely agree with you. I mean, I think for us, as I guess, millennials or snowflakes, whatever we're getting called at the moment, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, you don't necessarily want to, to have to go in and speak to someone. You want to be able to do it yourself. You want to be able to have convenience. And, and that's what has happened with with companies like Uber, which is all based around convenience, uh, things like the banking applications and challenger banks, uh, and, and I think increasingly healthcare. And it will be very, very interesting as I suppose our generation ages and then starts taking up more of the uh, sort of healthcare economics um, as people become unwell with age, how these systems are going to be much more, you know, even more adopted than they are at the moment. Yeah, obviously. I mean, I've got a four-year-old and a, and a coming up to two-year-old and um, the idea that um, they won't expect Alexa who sits in our kitchen to be able to interact with them when they're thinking about booking appointments with doctors. I just can't see it. I mean, already my four-year-old, um, you know, talks to Alexa sometimes more than she talks to me. So the ability to build a future healthcare system, I think is completely, um, you're completely right. We need to build it for the generations coming through. I think one of the reasons that I'm drawn to this as a paediatrician is because that's what I see. I mean, I can't remember the last time I saw a patient who didn't, uh, whose parent didn't have a smartphone and, and log it in. What I find also massively fascinating is often the most resource deficient parents will rely on their technology much more than everyone else. And I think when we're building a service, we've got to bear that in mind. So I think one of the challenges that we face is people going, oh yeah, but it's technology and it's only going to be millennials that use it or people that have it. Um, actually, if you're an overstretched uh, parent of four children uh, who's also looking after your parents and other bits and pieces you bet everything will go into your mobile phone because that will be the hub for every part of your life there's no other way around it from your calendar um, to being able to just you know allow your life to run yet for healthcare we do it the other way around today we say well you know it can't be that you've still got a phone receptionist at 8am in the morning um, you've still got to physically go and talk to somebody in a place of their choosing not yours um, and then I think we disengage people and the more disengaged people are, the less inclined they are to start early. And then we go around that horrible, vicious cycle of I'm only going to present to you when it's too late. Uh, and then we know that A, costs more money, but B, much more importantly, has a much more higher sort of societal cost. We have more people with um, strokes. We have more people with dementia. We have more people with all of those problems that we hope we might be able to help reduce in the future. And, and thinking about the future specifically, obviously, um, with us at HS, we look at frontier tech that's being built today for tomorrow to help patients. What are some of the things that are happening at Babylon that you might be able to tell us that, that you're working on at the moment? Um, well, our, our most recent announcement is one that I'm really excited about, and we're calling it Health Check. Um, and that's a service where you're able to go in and complete a health MOT almost so it will ask you via our chatbot or um, interface a few questions that you can answer at a time that you like about your family history about um, any medicines that you're taking about um, your own personalized health risk then what it does is take all of that information and load it into a um, load it into the platform and then generate what we call a digital twin so then we're able to say, hey, here's what you've told us. And here's a visualization of how that might impact your body going forward. 
And then, of course, the second part of that is saying, if it's going to impact it in this way, here's some help that we can give you to help reduce some of those risks. So if your cholesterol is high or we think it might be high, here's how we could lower that. Or if you had a family history of X, we might be able to suggest some ways of making sure you stay um, ahead of any uh, potential problems that may cause. Uh, and if we can spot them early enough, then we'll be able to stop them even starting in the first place. Um, that service, I think, is really exciting for two reasons. One is it uses technology in the best way that we can. So when I think about racing cars, um, and actually our new CTOs just come from McLaren, which is quite exciting in itself. But if you think about, you know, Formula One cars, which are at the pinnacle of the, their engineering excellence, before they ever get onto a track, they, there's loads of computer models that run over them to make sure that they're aerodynamically efficient and can perform optimally. Imagine if you can start doing that with the human body. Imagine if we can start saying, hey, we know all of this stuff. Now let's just use this digital version of yourself to run some models to see what would happen if you didn't stop smoking or see what would happen if we were able to help you lose a few kilos of weight and then truly start engaging people because I think engagement's the key. If I can engage you with the right sort of messaging, then I'm able to help you take the right sort of steps to lead to better health um, rather than what we do today, which is generically tell everybody to eat less uh, and do more exercise. I mean, that message just isn't personalised enough for um, you know, maximal effect. Well, it's, I mean, I think on almost every single podcast we've done so far, we've talked in, in some way or form about behavioural science and behaviour modification and, for, and, and actually getting patients to, to act on some of the either data or, or apps that are delivered to them. And I actually remember um, sitting, I think it's just around about two years ago now, um, at Exponential Medicine out in um, San Diego. And one of the bits of research that was being presented then was very similar to what you're describing it was uh, although much more uh, sort of specific around weight loss so mm -hmm. showing um a uh, a patient a future presentation of what they looked like as an avatar if they did or didn't do exercise um and they showed essentially just by showing the detriment of not exercising or not taking their medications their physical appearance would change and and that had a significant impact on their uh, compliance with medication and compliance with physio and exercise. Uh, so I think that's really, really exciting what you guys are doing. Thank you. I think it is, and it's exactly that. And I, um, I avoid using the word behavioural science because I think going back to one of your earlier questions, it's just being pragmatic. If we can do it, let's do it. And if we can start proving that it actually engages people and helps them understand um, their risks and, and helps them be empowered with what they can do to reduce those risks, then great. Uh, and if it doesn't, then let's go back to the drawing board. Um, but so far, we've had a few thousand people go through it. Uh, and I'd encourage any listeners to try and do it themselves. It's free, download the app and, and you'll see it there on the home screen. Um, but so far, the feedback's been great. Uh, and I look forward to being able to sort of use that data, um, get that data interrogated so that we can continue to build on it. What's the future for you, Bang? Uh, I don't know. I, do you know what? I didn't, I never expected to be here. So, of course, um, I always figured I'd just quite merrily be a doctor. Uh, still love being a doctor. And I still, you know, my favourite day of the week is still going in on a Friday and treating children. Um, I think when I, when I left to go and do the leadership fellowship for a bit and then started working at Aviva, um, all of that was about trying to become a much more rounded um, clinician to be able to help us protect our services going forward. I never expected to end up at a digital 
tech startup and I definitely never expected that startup to scale in the way that it does I think again when I was reading all those books everybody says oh look it's really exciting you learn lots but don't expect your startup to be successful um I remember early on in this um talking to somebody who was like do you know what my advice to you is just to hold on for as long as you can um so at the risk of just holding on that's where I am right now what I love about what we're doing is it really doesn't feel much like a job. I mean, what we're doing is saying, hey, let, let's take some of the world's biggest problems and really apply some good, deep thought to how we might be able to solve them using um, the latest techniques that are available. So from that perspective, just being able to keep on doing that is great. Um, what's next? Do you know what? I've got no idea, but, uh, you know, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> and what um what, what sort of advice might you give um say for example a, a a doctor in in any healthcare system uh you know potentially anywhere in the world not just in the nhs if they're interested in uh digital health digital technology or or even just sort of i suppose diversifying their portfolio what advice would you give them obviously you both you and james have been through the the leadership academy within the nhs and then my uh, sort of journey was was more uh basically just chaos of sort of coming back and coding and founding companies around my sort of on-call shifts and things but what what for you has worked well and what hasn't you think yeah i i think one of the things i remember and, and when i reflect on it has been having a just a positive mindset to explore new things so one of the favorite things we do on a Friday is be able to talk to some of the um, junior doctors or um, SHAs or just other clinicians that are there about what we're doing and going do you know what actually you can do it if you really want to but it's not as simple as just going I'm fed up of this I want to do something different it's about doing I think like the three of us have tried really getting um, deep into the the communities that exist in order to understand the problems and the solutions that are being um, created uh, and having that positive mindset of being able to go yeah do you know what I'll go to that that event or I'll go and meet that person and I'll go and talk to them um, so that you can better refine how you'll be most useful so uh, my advice would be um, rather than being sort of downtrodden by some of the inherent negativity to change that is in healthcare globally um trying to lift yourself out of that and going do you know what maybe i'll just go and start talking to these people and seeing if there's a part that will match a what i want to do and b um, what i can help with uh, in that first instance i think that's very good advice and for anybody that is interested in getting close to the digital health ecosystem and things you can look up our ambassador program at hs which is in the community section of our website so anybody that does want to get involved and feel free to have a look Uman, we, we end all these podcasts with giving you the opportunity to um, summarise either yourself, your company, and just let us know if you've got an ask at the moment to close us out. Great. Well, well thank you. Um, so I, I guess my ask would be, please do download the app and try a health check function and then give us your honest feedback about it. So um, download Babylon Health. Of course, just search for that in the app stores. Um register it's a you know a couple of clicks uh, and then in the center of the home screen you'll see a little button that says health check um check on there and um spend 15 minutes going through that it will then also ask you to give us feedback so please do do that so that's my ask in terms of a, a summary thank you very much for letting me talk about myself and what we're doing at babylon i love doing that uh, i think it's a really exciting and important time for health full stop um 
one of my favorite stories and maybe if it's okay i'll end on on this is that i heard once that um in traditional chinese medicine what we do uh, what they did was they would pay their doctors when they were well and they would stop paying when they were unwell. I think that's such a better model for healthcare. I think when I think about what we do for healthcare today, we're completely set up for failure. We're completely set up to help people when they're sick and incentivized to only fix people when they're actually ill. That can't be a long-term sustainable solution. I can't wait for us to be able to go back more upstream where we're able to just get back into that model of prioritising well-being and true health rather than only worrying about sick care, uh, which is where we are today. <laughs>